Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. There are several passages of scripture this morning, beginning in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next passage is from John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now John 1, verses 12 to 14. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The next passage is from Isaiah 65 verses 17 to 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last week we did introduced a new series that I'm calling The Story That Makes Sense of Our Stories. Now, if you weren't here, here's the basic idea. The idea is we have all been born into the gigantic story of this universe. That story began long before we ever got to be part of it. Many chapters have been written throughout it with the history of civilizations. We have been born into it, and who knows how many more chapters will be written after we are gone. And as we grow up, as we become adults, we gradually start to try to make sense of the story that we find ourselves in. Our parents and other people, other adults, they teach us an interpretation, their interpretation of this gigantic story that we have found ourselves born into. So our parents will teach us things like where we came from or what their opinions on what happens when we die. And most certainly our parents teach us what it means to be a little human being and what you're allowed to do and what you're never allowed to do. And you hear lots about that growing up. It's all interpretation of how we are to live within the big story that we have found ourselves in. So it's not just that we have been born into a gigantic story, it's also that we've been taught some interpretation of what that story is. So for example, what is the sun? Throughout the history of the world, many parents have taught their children that the sun is a god to be worshipped. But I'm going to assume that you've been taught a different interpretation of the story of the sun. 
And so author Ian Provan rightly, I think, points out that as we grow up, as we begin to consider all these things, we don't just accept the story that we, our parents have taught us. We begin to question the story that our parents and that society and maybe other adults have taught us. At first, it doesn't even occur to us that what they've taught us might be wrong. We just accept it as the absolute truth. But as we grow up, we start to question the interpretation of the giant story that we have been born into. What we're really asking ourselves is the true, what is the true story of how things really are? Our parents have taught us something, but we start to question it. And so then we go along a little farther and we start to learn, oh my goodness, there are many stories that people believe to interpret the giant story of the universe and what it means to be a human being within it. And then even more troubling, as you get older, you start to realize not only there are many stories that people have, these stories all contradict one another, disagree with one another. They can't all be true. I mean, either the sun is a god or the sun is not a god. There is either life after death or there is not life after death. And so you get to a point somewhere along in your life where you just are tired of all the opinions and all the differing ideas, and what you really want to know is what is the true story of the universe? And that's really the point of this series. This is what we are going to be wrestling through together. So here's the kind of banner question over the entire series. What story makes the best sense of the universe in which we find ourselves. There are many stories, but what story makes the best sense of the universe in which we find ourselves? And here's our plan. What we're doing each week is we're going to take a specific topic, a particular subject, such as our belief in human rights or our experience of beauty, we love beauty in the world, or what's wrong with the world, some particular topic like that, and we're going to interact with that topic and just talk about what stories people have told to try to make sense of these things. They're going to be competing stories. They're going to disagree with each other, and we're going to look at the different stories that people have told about these things, asking ourselves what story makes the best sense of a topic like human rights, for instance. And then what we're specifically going to do is we are going to look at the Christian story, the story of the Bible, which also amongst all the stories of the world claims that it is the true story of the universe in which we find ourselves. And we're going to go look at Genesis chapters 1 to 3, which is really the foundational, it's the beginning of the story. So many of the parts of the Bible story happen in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And we're going to compare and contrast the Bible story and what it says with the many other stories in order to try to make sense of this universe in which we find ourselves. So today we're going to get the series going, and today we're going to look at just the very first sentence in the Bible, literally starting at the beginning. And here is what the sentence says. You probably have it memorized if you know any Christianity at all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you imagine a whole sermon just on that? That's what we're about to do. Are you ready for that? Let's have some fun together. I think you'll realize there's a whole lot of depth in that tiny little sentence because the opening sentence of the Bible makes three claims, at least three claims, about the gigantic story that we have found ourselves in. So let's look at these three claims, and as we look at them, we're going to compare and contrast Genesis 1-1 with other stories that people have believed and have taught and the most common ones that people have today. So... The first thing that Genesis 1-1 says about this gigantic story that we have been born into is this. 
the universe had a beginning, which means it's not eternal. The universe had a beginning, which means it is not eternal. So we are beginning big picture here, aren't we? It's going to get very narrow right down to your personal life later on, but here's where we start. So here's what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, very first sentence, very first words, the Bible begins by saying, if you want to make sense of what you found yourself in, the Bible says the universe had a beginning. The Bible goes on to say, The time is linear. It's moving from point A over to point B. There was a beginning, and there will also be an end to this universe. So Isaiah 65 and verse 17 says, For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. This present existence, this this present part of the story is going to end, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So that's the basic beginning of the Bible story. And this is very different from the stories that people have believed throughout the history of the human race. For instance, Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism will teach that the universe has no beginning and no end. That really there is an endless cycles of reincarnation going on of which we as human beings hopefully will move up the ladder of reincarnation to eventually escape the cycles of reincarnation and become part of the eternal oneness. That's the Eastern world. Very simply, the history of the Western world is similar, though not exactly the same. In the history of the Western world, the greatest thinkers like Aristotle in the 4th century BC taught and everybody believed that matter, that time and motion are all eternal and therefore the universe is eternal. There was no beginning. It's eternal. This was the common belief. In fact, up until even recent times, many scientists kind of took a Hindu view of the universe, a Hindu view that the universe is forever going through cycles of birth, death, and rebirth. This is constantly going on. This has been the scientific view even up until very recent times. Even the great Albert Einstein initially believed that the universe had no beginning within time. You can't even fathom that now, of course, what he did later on. It was not until 1929 when Hubble and his colleagues discovered the expansion of the universe that Einstein started questioning that idea and, of course, eventually, of course, believes that the universe had a beginning. So how about you? What do you believe about this giant story of the universe? Is it eternal? Did it have a beginning? I'm going to assume that every single person in this room believes that the universe had a beginning. Unless you hold to an Eastern religion, we all would now agree with the world-famous physicist Stephen Hawking when he wrote that this, quote, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. And strikingly, the very first words of the Bible, written over 3,500 3, years ago, makes a claim that scientists have only recently begin, begun to believe. Namely, that everything that exists in this material universe had a beginning. So we're just starting on this very basic level, but also a very grand level to make sense of the universe that we find ourselves in. So right away, now we can ask the question, what story makes the best sense of the fact that the universe had a beginning? Of all the stories you could believe, so you could believe Eastern religion stories, you could believe Aristotle's version of the story of the universe, of all the stories that try to make sense of the universe, 
What story makes the best sense of the fact that the universe had a beginning? And so far, the old story of the Bible is starting off on a pretty good note, isn't it? It's starting off right away by making perfect sense of the universe that we find ourselves in. So far, this story is helping us to understand reality in a way we'd all say, check, looking good so far. That's the first thing, starting really big picture. Now we're going to narrow it just a little bit, but still staying pretty broad. The second thing that the first sentence of the Bible tells us about the universe in which we have found ourselves is this. The universe was created by God, which means God pre-existed the universe. The universe was created by God, which means God pre-existed the universe. So now we're going to think really big picture, okay? But this is the most important question, the most thing you've got to be able to ponder. You maybe pondered it before, but it's the most fundamental building blocks of your entire understanding of reality. Way back in the 1600s, the German mathematician and philosopher Gottfried Leibniz asked the ultimate question we all have to ask, and it's simply this. Why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> this is a big picture, isn't it? Really big, but foundational. You're lying in bed at night. Why is there something rather than nothing? It might sound kind of philosophical, but could it get more practical than that? I mean, why is there something rather than nothing? Surely this is one of the biggest questions you can ask, is why does the universe even exist? And if you think, oh, that's really high and full of philosophical, I don't really care. Well, here's the next really important question that really will matter to you. Why do you even exist? Oh, now it's practical. Because your existence is caught up within the larger question of why anything exists at all. So why does the universe even exist? And why do I even exist? Why am I even here? And you start tracing that backwards and backwards. Okay, I came from my parents. My parents changed from their parents. You go farther and farther back. Why is there something rather than nothing? And of course, the most common answer to that in our day is a story of the universe that most people in our culture would hold. And how does that story go? That story would go something like this. Once upon a time, there was nothing. Not God, not gods, not anything. There was nothing. And then the universe exploded into existence through the Big Bang, and after billions of years, life evolved on our planet so that eventually you and I come to be sitting here today or watching at home or wherever we're listening to this today. So, for instance, in his 2010 book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking again writes this. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist, it is not necessary to invoke God. So that's one story that is trying to make sense of this gigantic question of why is there something rather than nothing. But Hawking's quote and his belief and this story comes with a serious problem. Do you know the name Dr. John Lennox? Also just an absolute genius of a man. He's at Oxford. He's a, a, a mathematician. He wrote an article pointing out the big problem in this story and the big problem with Hawking's quote here. So as you look at that quote again, can you see the problem in it when you're pondering it? 
I'll help you along, but can you see it for yourself right away? Notice on the one hand that he says, and most people would believe, that before the universe existed, there was, what's the word? Nothing. There was nothing. He's saying that on the one hand. There was nothing. What is, what is nothing? <laughs> nothing is no thing. There is nothing. Literally, there is absolutely nothing. But then notice at the exact same time that he says there was something. There was gravity. So now we've redefined the word nothing, haven't we? Isn't the word nothing mean no thing? There is nothing. And yet suddenly he throws in there that there was gravity. And so what Dr. Lennox is pointing out, and so many people would point out as well, you can't say both of these things. To say that there was gravity is to say there was something. There would have been nothing else, but you're saying there was something. To say that there was nothing is to say not even gravity existed. But to say that gravity was present is either to believe, you have to either believe gravity is eternal, or you have to believe gravity created itself out of nothing. And so what Dr. Lennox says is, how did gravity exist in the first place? Who put gravity there? What was the creative force that made gravity exist? So to believe this story of the universe, you have to believe in something that is both logically impossible and physically impossible. Logically impossible, you have to believe that nothing can produce something, which is logically impossible. And then you have to believe something that's physically impossible is that nothing produced absolutely everything that exists, including you. So that's one story that people tell and most people in our culture would believe about where the universe came from, that it came from nothing, that nothing produced everything. And yet that's a logical impossibility. There had to have been something there and so that's why Hawking has to smuggle in gravity because there has to be something. No, it's a logical impossibility, a physical impossibility for nothing to produce something. Now, compare and contrast that story that most people believe with just the Christian story that we're reading here. Here it is again. In the beginning, the Bible claims in its very first sentence, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that little phrase, heavens and the earth, really refers to all that there is in this universe. The word created declares that the universe was made, and of course the word God tells us who made it. So the Bible begins in its very first sentence by saying that the reason there is something rather than nothing is that God created it all. But it is, of course, right here that if you've had any of these kind of conversations, especially with kids who are the smart ones, they're going to ask a question at this point. Can you guess what that question might be? It's an objection. Well, let's let Hawking say it for himself because every kid could say it too, but let's listen to Hawking again. Some, he says, would claim that the answer to these questions is that there is a God who chose to create the universe that way. It is reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. That's a good question to ask, he says. But if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of who created God. My kids have asked me this question their whole lives. Okay, we're going to say nothing cannot come something cannot come from nothing, you say, okay, God created, then the next question is, if God created everything, then who created God? 
Well, let's think that through for a moment. What I want to suggest to you is that even the way we have phrased that question, has, we've made an elementary mistake at the very beginning of it. A question, as soon as we put that elementary mistake, as soon as that happens, we automatically have made it all look ridiculous and it can't be true. But as soon as you correct the elementary mistake, well, now it's no longer illogical. So here's the way to think about it. If the, if the question is, if God created everything, then who created God? What you're talking about, just imagine a circle, and inside the circle is everything that exists. And what we're saying is, God created everything, and who created God? What you're really doing is you're putting God within the circle. God is within the everything that has been created. And so, therefore, it is a logical question to say, if God created everything, then who created God? It's a logical question. It works just fine. But something's happened in the question that has made it become a logical one. Something needs to be corrected in the question because the Bible begins in Genesis 1.1 and the rest of the Bible to say that God wasn't created, that God exists outside of the circle. So now you need to rephrase the question. The Bible says that God is eternal, that God is uncreated. And so now it's no longer, it's now illogical. You can't ask if God is part of everything that is created, how does he get created? Because now the question should be properly phrased like this. You should say, who created the uncreated God? Think about that. Now, as soon as you phrase it properly, now it no longer makes any sense, does it? Who created the uncreated God? Your answer is, Nobody can create an uncreated God. He's uncreated. This is what the Bible is always saying. It's saying God is not part of the circle. If he was, you could ask the question. No problem. But God is outside the circle. Think of it like God is more, not like a character in the story of the universe. He is the author who stands outside of the book. That's what he's like. So you can't really ask that question because it's illogical. He stands outside of it. Now, the, the, now that becomes like, well, do I understand how a, a being can be eternal and uncreated? No, I don't. This is, what I, this is where we love to go with my kids. Dad, how could God be eternal? How could he be uncreated? This is the point where I'm like, I have no idea. I can't comprehend that. But it is logical to say that an uncreated being created everything that exists. It's not that it's illogical. Is it hard to understand? Absolutely it is. But listen, have you done enough? You've done enough study on the universe. You know enough of how amazing it is, how vast it is, do you not think that a God who can create all that from the microscopic to the black holes, do you not think a God like that would be far beyond your comprehension? And really, this whole universe is nothing more, as one man says, nothing more than a marble in God's living room. He's the author who stands outside the story. So this is the claim of the Bible. That God is not a created being. He is an uncreated being. And he is the one who created everything that exists within the universe. So, now ask the question, what story makes the best sense of how the universe came into existence? And really today, we haven't considered all the stories today, but we did the most popular one. The most popular one is to say that nothing produced everything, including you. Does that make good sense of the universe you find yourself in? Or is it the story that says an eternal and a powerful God created everything, including you? This is the question that each of us needs to ponder because it's the most highest and most important question. And now, as we come to the third point, it's going to become the most practical. We've been really high, haven't we? Now it gets really practical. Okay, so the third thing that the opening sentence of the Bible tells us 
about the universe in which we find ourselves is that the universe was created with purpose. It was created with purpose, which explains why we all live as if our lives truly have meaning or purpose. The universe was created with purpose, which explains why we all live as if our lives truly have meaning or purpose. So now this gets really practical. Here's something I know about you and about me and about all of us. We all believe that our lives have meaning and purpose. You believe it in the core of who you are. You believe it so much it's like the water that a fish swims in and doesn't even know is really there. You know it because you get up and start each day. As soon as you begin a day, you believe there's some reason to live for today. And then all the things that we do, from working hard at your job, uh, to building relationships, to seeking romantic relationships, to maybe getting married, to having children, to go on vacations, to hobbies, to projects, every single one of those things is you expressing a deep belief that you believe that your life has meaning and your life has purpose. We all believe this and we believe it in the very core of who we are. So here's the question we all have to ask ourselves then. What story makes the best sense of the fact that we all live as if our lives truly have meaning and purpose? That they truly have that. So what I want to do right now is I want to consider three potential stories and they are these. First, I want to talk about what I'm going to call the pessimistic secular story. Secondly, the optimistic secular story, and then the Christian story. And I want to contrast them all and hopefully come up with something that makes the best sense of this, particularly from the Christian side. Okay, so first of all, consider with me what I'm going to label as the pessimistic secular story. And I say it's pessimistic because this would be the story that a lot of people in our culture would believe. They would say life has no ultimate meaning or purpose. And we must face this harsh reality. Generally speaking, in our culture, there are many who would hold to what we call the pessimistic secular story, which would say life has no ultimate purpose or meaning, and we simply have to face up to that fact. So the pessimistic story is the one we talked about earlier. It's the one that says that the universe did not come into existence on purpose, but by accident. When the Big Bang happened billions of years ago, so the universe is here by accident, and by extension, you are also here by accident. Soon you're going to die. Eventually everyone's going to die. Eventually the sun and all energy in the universe is going to run out, and the whole entire universe is going to die. That's why I call it pessimistic, because that's pretty dark stuff, right? Now, it's logical. Follow this. It is a proper and logical belief to say, and even the best and the most honest atheists, they all say this, that if the universe we find ourselves in is a giant accident and that our lives are accidents, then there is no ultimate purpose to your life or to my life or to anything. We're just here. We happen to be here. And one day we are going to be gone. And all of us must face up to that fact. The most honest people are going to say, you got to face up to that. You might not like it, but it is the harsh reality that you must face and let's be honest, that's the logical answer. If the universe is all here by accident, so are you. Now, it's a bitter pill to swallow, no question about it. But it is logical. And in the end, your life and all that you have ever done, if this is the story you believe, will literally be for nothing. I'm here to make you happy this morning. 
Your life will literally be for nothing because as the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel says, quote, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. I told you, this is a self-help talk, right? You're going to feel good. What I am trying to show you is this is a story, and it's one of the most common stories that people in our culture believe today, and it is perfectly logical. If that's the story of the universe and where we came from, if we came from nothing, we will eventually become nothing. There is no ultimate purpose to anything, and all the effort that you put into your job and all the things you do in the end has no ultimate purpose. And so what the most honest atheists are saying, like Thomas Nagel is, face the facts, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but it is the logical way, and you got to deal with it. That's the pessimistic one. But almost no one can swallow this bitter pill. Bitter pill. We just cannot live like this as human beings. We cannot live with such a sense of despair, and so a new story has emerged within our culture, and I'm going to call it the optimistic secular story. And this story says life does have no ultimate meaning. That's true, but we can create our own meaning. Life has no ultimate meaning, but we can each create our own meaning. So it's the exact same story as the pessimistic secular story. It logically agrees that there is no ultimate purpose to your life or to the universe because there might not be a God or he's far off and gone. And we're here by accident and all those kind of things. So it agrees with the overall story of the universe. It agrees there is no ultimate purpose. But then what our culture says, and a lot of people would hold this, we can create our own meaning. We can create our own purpose. And I think at first glance that sounds great, and it does work to a certain point. But at the end, I don't think it does work for at least two reasons. First of all, we cannot find that deep sense of meaning and purpose that we all crave. We try to find meaning in things like family and relationships and work and vacations, and they do provide us a certain sense of meaning. Of course they do. But as modern people, so many people are writing, secular writers are writing, we're haunted. We're haunted by the idea that there must be something more. That all these things that we've tried to create meaning and find meaning in, they're not fully doing it for us. At the end of the day, we're haunted that there must be something more. And so what our answer then is, well, I just got to go try some more things. Or I just need a newer house. Or I need a new spouse. Or I need something else. And we keep trying one more thing in hopes that we will find that elusive meaning. But right here, I think we need to listen to the people who have actually achieved all the things that we often try to work for. You know, nicer houses, higher paying jobs, I don't know, better romantic life. The people who've actually got all those things... What do they say when they get there? We could give a lot of examples, but let's think, for instance, of the singer John Mayer. He's won seven Grammy Awards. Uh, you probably know many of his songs. He, he sings a song where he talks about how he has it all. But then he comes to the chorus, and he sings these words. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. At all. And then he goes through a checklist of all the things he has. Friends, check. Money, check. Good times, check. Opposite sex, check. He goes on with some more. Guitar, he's got his music. Check. Microphone, check. Nice little play on words there. Messages waiting on me when I come home, check. And then he goes back and sings again. Something's missing. So the idea that we can create our own meaning and purpose works to a certain degree. But if we're honest, like John Mayer, 
we eventually admit there's still something missing. I can't find all the meaning and purpose that I want. But secondly, and probably more importantly, is to say that when, if we create, that when we try to create our own meaning, we're actually living in denial of reality. We're playing pretend, if you will. It is to, uh, it is to purposely live in a way that we know is not actually true. Because you see, the, the secular story, the big secular story we've been looking at says, there is no ultimate purpose to the universe, but we can create meaning. But we can't create true meaning. It's just pretended meaning. It's to live as if the universe has meaning when it actually doesn't. But we're just going to live this way anyways. We're going to make up our own meaning, even though there is no ultimate meaning. It's playing pretend. The author, I think, that really brings this home the best, and it's always through stories, I think that these things come home to us the best, is the writer, the old English writer, H.G. Wells. You probably have uh, seen the movies The War of the Worlds, or you know that story. He's the guy who wrote The War of the Worlds. He also wrote another little short story, one of my favorite short stories, called The Time Machine. And he wrote it for a purpose. It's not just for entertainment. In the story, a man invents a time travel device that he can sit in and he can travel through time. And so what he does is he wants to go far into the future to discover what happens with humanity. So he goes a few hundred years into the future and he watches as human civilizations are being built up and becoming stronger and greater. A few hundred more years into the future, humanity is thriving. He goes a few thousand years into the future and all of a sudden he notices the human civilizations are starting to fall apart and to decay. He goes a few thousand more into the future and civilization is collapsing. He goes a million years into the future and humanity is now extinct. He goes a few million more years into the future and now there's no life left on planet earth. There's just a little bit of moss and lichen kind of covering the planet now. And he, begins, he steps out of his time machine on this future earth millions of years into the future and he describes what it's like that there's no life left on earth and here's how he describes it. The world was silent. It would be hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleating of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our, I should say, of our lives, all was over. It was all finished. And so he sits in his time machine and he, he, he starts traveling millions and millions of years quickly to the future and he watches out his windows to see what's going to happen on planet Earth and he's sitting in front of some giant mountains and as the millions pass, the entire mountains start to erode and eventually the mountains disappear. Now everything is starting to fade. Then he watches to his absolute horror as the sun begins to fade and then it turns to black and darkness covers the entire face of the planet. He realizes in that moment, all that humanity has worked so hard to achieve is gone. All that we have loved, all that we have cherished, it's all gone. All the things that you did in your work, you put so much effort into this week. It was all for nothing. It's all gone at this point. The horror of that great darkness overwhelms him. And so he quickly time travels back to the present day where he lives for a few years and then he just disappears with his time machine. And so then Wells adds a one-page epilogue, pondering on what would happen, what happened with this time traveler. So he's still playing with the story, but now Wells is trying to make his comment on why he wrote this story. 
And so he ponders, maybe the time traveler went back in time. And he says, no, he probably went forward in time to see what happens with humanity and to kind of see the advancements of our civilization. But then he says, if he went forward, what would he be going forward to? So we read this. The time traveler thought cheerlessly of the advancement of mankind. In other words, no joy as he thinks about the advancement of all of humanity and saw in the growing pile of civilization only a foolish heaping, building up all the civilization that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers in the end. So do you see what Wells is saying? He's trying to get us to come to grips with either the pessimistic or the optimistic secular story. He says, if this is the true story of the universe, if there is no God or if God's just far off and if there's no afterlife, then all the things that you and I have worked so hard for, and man, do we work hard, all the things that we've invested in, all the things that humanity has built over the decades, over the centuries and millennia, all those things, he says, in the end mean nothing. It will be like we never existed at all if the secular story is true. But even H.G. Wells cannot swallow the bitter pill that is the pessimistic secular story. Even he cannot face that reality because it's just too hard. It's too bitter of a pill. It's too dark. He can't go there. So what does Wells say we should do about all this? Here's his big line at the end of his epilogue. If that is so, if this is the way it all goes, it remains for us to live as though it were not so. Wow. I just read that and I just sat there and went, so we're going to play pretend. We're not going to face reality. We're going to live in denial of reality. We're gonna, we know that if this secular story is true, that's where it's all going to go, but we're just going to pretend that's not what's going to happen, and we're going to live our lives as if it's never going to happen, so we can pretend that we have meaning, even though we don't actually have meaning, and we can do all these things in our lives as if it's going to matter when it's not actually going to matter. That's what he's saying. The only way we can escape the despair of the pessimistic secular story is to pretend that life has meaning, to live as if our lives have purpose when they actually don't, to live as if our achievements matter when they actually don't, to live as if that deep sense of purpose within us is a real thing when it actually isn't. So the optimistic secular story is a way of living in denial of reality. It's not real. And yet no one can really swallow the bitter pill of the pessimistic secular story. And of course, this is the story that most people within our Western culture believe today. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to really think it through as we've tried to do this morning. Yet I don't want to leave you there, leaving you all happy and feeling good. (laughs) I want us to turn in the final place now to contrast that with the Christian story. Because here's what the Christian story says, that life has true meaning because God created us with purpose. That's the summary. Life has true meaning because God created us with purpose. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now, just reflect on that for a moment. What is it saying? It's saying that the God, the uncreated God, created all that exists on purpose. Purpose, intentionally. 
We know that because as you read on in Genesis 1 to 3, the God who created all things is not like an impersonal force in Star Wars. If God was an impersonal force, you might say, well, he accidentally created or just the universe kind of happened outside of it because he exists. It kind of just, I don't know, happened. That, that's not the story. The story is that the God of the Bible is a personal being. He speaks to his creation. He's in relationship with his creation. So listen, if a personal being creates something on purpose, it has purpose. When, you, when we create as human beings, we create a pencil. A pencil has a purpose. It's an intentional design. It has meaning and purpose because its maker made it that way. This is the story of the Bible. The Christian story declares that at the very center of reality is a person. The person who is God, this personal God, created his universe on purpose. That the universe is not an accident. It's all here on purpose. It's all part of the design. The author wrote the story. So now here's the big follow-up. If the universe is here on purpose and God made it all for a reason, it follows also that you are not an accident. That you are here on purpose. For God did not just create his universe kind of like a winding up a clock and then just letting it run. He created everything with absolute intention and purpose, as we're really going to see next week in the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Everything was created on purpose, none by accident, which means there is ultimate purpose and meaning not only to the universe, but to your life as well. As small as you are in the grand scheme of the universe... You are here on purpose. You are not an accident. In other words, that deep sense that you have within you that feels like your life matters, the Christian story says that deep sense is real. You're not mistaken. You're not deceived. That deep sense inside of you that says, my life has purpose when you think that, that deep sense is real. The deep sense inside of you that believes that your actions matter and what you do matters, the Christian story says, it's real. You're not deceiving yourself. You're not playing pretend. You're not living in denial of reality. You are in sync with reality when you say, my life has purpose. It has meaning. The Christian story says, oh yes, it does. Absolutely it does. You're living in sync for you were made on purpose by a creator. You have a reason for your existence and what you do matters. So you know it deep inside of you, and the Christian story is saying this is why it is the case. Furthermore, the Christian story says that when you sense, like John Mayer does, that something is missing, that something is God himself. As the great Christian leader from the 4th century named Augustine wrote these famous words, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, speaking of God. That's the answer to John Mayer's something's missing. When you sense as well, something is missing, missing, the answer is that restlessness, that missingness, is because you are trying to find your purpose and meaning in lesser things, in, in, in relationships as good as they may be, in vacations as good as they may be. Those are all meant to give you some sense of purpose, but your ultimate purpose is to know your creator and to be in relationship with your creator. And yet the Bible says we've all been deceived into thinking that we can find meaning and purpose apart from our creator. And that's why we try to find it in all these other things and even in good things like our families. But I think we all know deep down inside 
the best things in this world do not fully satisfy. Just like John Mayer says, something is missing. And what the Bible says that something is, is God himself. But the good news of the Bible is that rather than reject us because we've turned our backs on our Creator, that God actually seeks us out. Our Creator wants to know us. He wants to restore the relationship that's been broken. And so this eternal, uncreated God enters in to time and space history. God becomes a man and walks on planet Earth, and He comes for a reason. He comes to make things right between us again. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh. Jesus is the God who put on human flesh Jesus is the one who comes to die on a cross to take the punishment for our sins that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and restored into relationship with our Creator and find our ultimate purpose and meaning. So that's why John chapter 1 puts it this way, echoes of Genesis 1, in the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, referring to the eternal Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Genesis 1. But now listen to the next step. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal Son of God enters into time and space history, taking on the form of a man. And here's the reason. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want to know the ultimate reason for your existence and why you are here? There you have it to be restored back to your creator, to be his child, to be part of his family, to be loved by him, to find your purpose in him, and for him to teach you what it means to be truly human. Jesus came in order to make that possible. He says, for those who believe in him, who give their lives to him, he will make all of that happen. And then the Christian story goes on to say that because Jesus died and rose again, all who belong to him will die and be raised from the dead to dwell with their creator forever on a new heavens and a new earth, finding their ultimate purpose in him for all of eternity. So let's bring all this together now. We've all been born into a gigantic story, the story of this universe. But what is the story that we find ourselves born into? There are many different stories people have told to make sense of it all, but what story do you think makes the best sense of this life? What story makes the best sense of the fact that you, in the core of your being, believe that your life has meaning and it has purpose? And what I've tried to argue and show to you today is that the Christian story makes the best sense of this. It makes the best sense of it because you know that you, are, you have purpose and meaning. And the Christian story says God created it all with purpose and created you with purpose. And so the invitation at the end of this message then is to receive Jesus Christ. To come before him and say, Jesus, I want to discover my purpose and meaning. Forgive me of my sins. Give me that status as a child within the family of God. Teach me who you are and make me right with my creator again. I want to give you that opportunity right now if you want to do that. So let's pray together. And if you want to do that, pray something like this after me. Pray, Father in heaven, I ask that you would forgive my sins. Forgive me for trying to find meaning and purpose just in created things. 
I want to find my purpose in you, my creator. Restore me to you. Make me right with you. Jesus, please save me. And if that's your prayer from the depth of your heart, then Jesus promises, as we've just read, he gives you the right to become the child of God, to be restored to your creator. And he wants to know you and to teach you what it means to be truly human. Father, thank you for sending your son into this world. Thank you that you did not abandon us when we turned our backs on you. Thank you that you have revealed these things to us that we might understand this giant story that we find ourselves in. Teach us more what it means to live as the human beings you've made us to be. Teach us to know what it means to walk with our creator, to know you. And thank you for the great hope that one day we will dwell with you forever. We give you the thanks and the praise. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening.